It's good to be with you this morning. Again, my name is Adam Bultel. I'm visiting from Kansas City. I'm just thrilling to be back in this church. As Justin said, I grew up in this church, and it's always a, a sweet time to come back and to see so many faces that I do not recognize, uh, which means that many of you don't recognize me. Uh, so encouraging to see the growth of this church. I love getting updates from afar of what, a, what is happening in Kansas City at Faith Bible Church. I bring greetings from Mission Row Bible Church in Kansas City. Um, I'm continually praying for this church and the pastors and uh, staff and elders that are here serving. Just thankful, so thankful for the many relationships that are, that are here in this church. You have, a, uh, you have a very intentional, very purposeful staff and elder board, even, even this morning, just sitting here and listening uh, to everything that has been prepared thus far this morning. Uh, I told them that the text that I would be preaching and, and every song, the prayer, the scripture reading, everything that's taken place this morning all flows perfectly to the text that we are about to focus on for, for the next few minutes. Just so thankful for the intentionality of the leadership team that you have here to make Christ known and to make him glorified in this body. So with that in mind, let's open our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We will be in just one verse this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. We could have a fun lunchtime discussion around the topic of what the best era of history is to live in. It would be a, a fun debate to have. There's lots of different eras that many would have an affinity for. There's medieval times, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, the Victorian era. And we could have a fun debate about what would be the most enjoyable, the most fun era of history to live in. And while there may be attractive aspects to many eras, it doesn't take much evaluation before we realize that the greatest era to live in is the one that we're living in right now. Now, you may disagree with me. It's certainly your right to do so, but let's be clear about something. You're wrong. We have vehicles. We have airplanes. We have iPhones. We have television. Now, some may say that the technology of our age is what makes this age so frustrating, and I certainly understand that. But with those advancements have come medical advancements. Life expectancy, life expectancy is the highest it's been, since Melchizedek, fatality rates have plummeted with medical technology and advancements. Messages can spread, including the gospel, in ways that they could not spread before. Unless you are still not convinced, O oh, residents of Naples, Florida, we have air conditioning. We have air conditioning in this era. I assure you, this is the best era to live in. It's easy to forget of the, it's easy to forget the blessing of the position that we are in. Many of us don't wake up every morning and say, 2020, what a time to be alive. Because we grow accustomed to and we take for granted so many of the blessings that are all around us every day. It's human nature. We can have a very similar discussion about the best era to live in in biblical history. And that's an equally fascinating conversation. How amazing it would be to see the creation to see the Garden of Eden, the Exodus, the crossing of the Red Sea. To see the works of Elijah and Elisha. To see Christ. To see his resurrection, his ascension. To see Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descended. 
so many amazing events in Scripture that would have been incredible, incredible to experience. Well, in our text this morning, in 2 Thessalonians 3, from one perspective, you could say that Paul is having a very similar debate. He, in many ways, is having a debate with his readers about what is the best era to live in in biblical history. Because in this text, Paul is comparing the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. In verses 7 through 11 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he refers to two ministries. The ministry of death and the ministry of life. The ministry of the law and the ministry of the Spirit. Look for just a few minutes at verses 7 through 11 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and see this comparison as it leads into our text this morning. Now if the ministry of death, that is the old covenant, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For what was being brought to an end came with glory. Much more will what is permanent have glory. See, in those verses, Paul is talking about two different ministries, two different covenants. The old ministry or the old covenant is the law and the promises that were delivered to Moses. The new ministry, the new covenant is the promise of God to every believer that comes after the death and resurrection of Christ. In other words, what's taking place in this chapter is that Paul is comparing the covenant before Christ to the covenant after Christ. Said another way. He is comparing the experience of an Old Testament believer to the experience of a New Testament believer. And his test case for this debate, and ultimately the climax of his argument, is not to compare the content of the two covenants, but rather to compare the experience of those who are under those covenants. And the test case that he specifically chooses for such an experience is Moses and any new covenant believer. Paul in this text is comparing the experience of Moses with the experience of any believer that comes after the death and resurrection of Christ. And his conclusion in verses 7 through 11 is that that which has come after Christ is more glorious Yes, what took place with Moses was glorious. There was much glory that came with Moses receiving the law and coming down off the mountain and his face shining as was read in our scripture reading. There was glory in that scene. But it fails in comparison to the glory of what you have. It fails in comparison. In this verse, we're going to look at Two different transformations, Moses' transformation, because of his encounter with God on Mount Sinai. That's going to be compared with the transformation of a new covenant believer. Two transformations. 
The word transformation is, in fact, a, a key word in this text. It simply means to be changed. It's the Greek word is where we get our word metamorphosis from. It's to fundamentally and to foundationally change. And so, regarding this fundamental and foundational change, Paul's verdict is this. Moses' experience was amazing. His transformation was incredible. But yours is better. Yours is better. I want to draw our attention to this passage because it is It is healthy for us to revisit and to remember what God has done for us and what he is continually doing in us and then to rejoice in this fact with the observation that we are in a privileged position. So much so that the heroes of the faith, men like Moses, I believe would look at us and desire to be In our position. I believe that if Moses were given the choice. Between his position or your position. He would choose yours. Because Paul is saying that this. Your experience of transformation. Is more glorious. It's more glorious. Paul communicates that truth. All through 2 Corinthians 3. Where he says that. You have it better than Moses. To appreciate that fully, though, I think it's helpful for us just briefly to review what exactly happened to Moses on Mount Sinai. We don't have time to read all of it now, but this story is found uh, really in Exodus 32 all the way through 34. It's a story of of a transformation that Moses undergoes. Moses is asking God to spare the Israelites for sin that they have just committed, and God grants this request. God says, I will forgive you. And Moses, in, res- in response to this expression of forgiveness that God has just spoken to Moses, Moses asks God a bold question. He says, show me your glory. When God gives forgiveness, Moses is, is so overwhelmed. All he can think to ask for is to see more of God. And so he says, show me your glory. And God responds to Moses in a fascinating way. He says, I'll show you my goodness. I'll show you my goodness, but you cannot see my face. For to see my face is to die. Moses says, show me your glory. God says, I'll show you my goodness because you cannot see me in all of my glory. You cannot look into my face or you will die. But God does begin to prepare Moses for what he is about to undergo in beholding God's goodness. He tells Moses what he must do to get ready. So Moses is hidden in a cleft of the rock. God places his hand over Moses' eyes and we're told that God passes by him on Mount Sinai. And that as he does, God declares to Moses his character. God reveals to Moses the goodness of who he is. This is what God says to Moses on Mount Sinai. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. 
yet by no means leaves the guilty unpunished, visiting the sins of fathers to the third and fourth generations. Moses hears these words, declaring the goodness of God, and Moses falls down in worship. And at that moment, God makes a covenant with Israel. Moses is on the mountain for 40 days and for 40 nights. At the end of that event, Moses comes down off of the mountain. And as we read in our scripture reading, when he comes down off of the mountain, there is light pouring out of his face. His face is shining. The Israelites are terrified even to interact with him. Can you imagine? Can you imagine this scene? How amazing this experience must have been. It's easy to think sometimes as Christians that if I had had an experience that was like Moses, then, then I would be sold out for God. and Then I would be committed to being transformed. If I could have seen what the disciples saw, if I could have just seen it instead of reading about it, my faith would be so much stronger. It's easy to think thoughts like this. If I had a testimony like my pastor, I would be more faithful. Or if I had someone's personality or skill set or charisma or what have you. If I could just encounter God like that. What Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3 is that your encounter with God is more glorious than Moses. Your encounter with God is more glorious than Moses. Moses was transformed. Moses was transformed, but his transformation was not as great as yours. And in this one verse, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, that we'll read in just a moment, he gives us six reasons why. And those six reasons why are going to drive our conversation for the rest of the morning. These are going to drive our time as we walk through 2 Corinthians 3.18. Six reasons to be amazed that God would transform you. Six reasons to be amazed that God would transform you. Now the goal of our time this morning is not that we would all walk around feeling better than Moses. Rather, the goal is that we would realize that we are in a privileged position. That if you are a child of God, it is amazing. And we should be amazed. It's so easy to stop being amazed. But What, Mo- what Paul describes here is in the truest sense, unbelievable. It should drive us to amazement. It should drive us to worship as we behold these six reasons to be amazed that God would transform us. These six reasons are all in one verse. Every word of the verse that I'm about to read is dripping with contrast to the experience of Moses. Every phrase is a sharp contrast to what took place on Mount Sinai. And really what took place for all believers in the Old Covenant. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, 
who is the Spirit. The first contrast with Moses that shows us a reason to be amazed that God would transform, the, that God would transform us is found in the first three words of this verse. When Paul writes, and we all. You see, in the case of Moses, in the case of Moses, he was a single individual that went up on a mountain and encountered God. But the first words of the experience of the new covenant believer is not of one person that went up on the mountain to encounter God. Rather, the contrast is Paul writes, and we all. We all are involved in this thing. The transforming effects of God's grace are not directed towards one person like Moses on Mount Sinai, but towards the we all. That is the entirety of the church. Every believer fully receives the transforming grace of God. And so the first reason to be amazed that God would transform you is this. Because you have a personal relationship with God. That's the first reason. The first reason in this text to be amazed that God would transform you is because you have a personal relationship with God. One term that accurately describes Moses is that he was a mediator. He was a mediator. Every person did not just have open access to God like Moses. Moses, as a mediator, stood between Israel and God. He spoke with God on Israel's behalf. He spoke for Israel to God, and he spoke to Israel from God. Moses had access to God. In fact, there was a, a tent of meeting that Moses would go into and he would speak with God. He interceded for his people. He asked for forgiveness on their behalf. He spoke with God because they couldn't. They needed a mediator. But we all. That is the contrast. That is a massive contrast to the experience of the Old Testament saint. The one versus the all. Moses had access to God on behalf of Israel, but every single believer has personal, ongoing access to God. Do you realize the privilege it is that we have personal access to God, to talk to God, and He hears you, to seek forgiveness, to ask Him for things. Romans says that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. What right do we have to approach God? We have personal, ongoing access to the God of the universe. And let's be clear this morning, that access to the Father that brings about transforming grace is only available to us through the person of Jesus Christ, a greater mediator than Moses, who gave up his life and the veil in the temple that used to restrict access to God was torn when the Son of God gave up His life, giving every believer personal, ongoing access to the throne of God because of Christ. That is amazing. That's amazing. Moses was transformed by God, surely. But we all 
have been transformed by the saving grace and are given personal access to a personal relationship with God through Christ. Be amazed because you have a personal relationship with God. But we all. But Paul is not done. He continues. We're going only three more words here. But we all in 2 Corinthians 3.18 and we all with unveiled face. And we all with unveiled face. In those three words we find a second reason to be amazed that God would transform you. A second reason to be amazed is because your transformation doesn't fade. Your transformation doesn't fade. Now, it may not be readily apparent how the expression with unveiled face communicates that your transformation does not fade, but I believe this text is very clear on this point. Why does Paul say that our faces are unveiled? Remember, this scene is a comparison between us and Moses. Paul is saying, Moses wore a veil. But we don't. We don't. Why does that matter? Well, the reason that that matters is directly connected to the reason that Moses wore a veil. Now, it's easy for us to think that Moses wore a veil because his face was so bright that he was shielding others from it. But if we pay careful attention in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that's not really at the heart of the reason that Moses wore a veil. Look at verses 12 and 13 of 2 Corinthians 3. Look at the reason that Moses wore a veil. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. You know why Moses wore a veil? So that the Israelites wouldn't see that his shining face was a glory that was coming to an end. Moses wore a veil so that the Israelites wouldn't see that his glory was a fading glory. You see, Moses' Moses' shining face wore off after time. Moses' face that was shining when he came down from Mount Sinai was, was like, a pair of, like a pair of shoes that needs to be polished. You know, when you have an unpolished pair of shoes, you don't wear them because they don't look right. And you have to go back and you have to polish them and, and, and they, they shine again and then you can wear them again. Moses' face was very similar. His face was shining, but it would fade. That, that shining would wear off over time. And so Moses wore a veil so that the Israelites didn't notice that his glory was a fading glory. But what we're told in Exodus is that Moses would go and he would talk to God again. He would encounter God again and he would come back out and his face would be shining again and he would remove the veil and he would, he would speak to Israel. But then the glory would start to fade and the veil would come back down. 
Moses wore a veil. But we all, with unveiled face. Paul says we don't need a veil. Why do we not need a veil? Because we have nothing to hide. Because our transformation doesn't fade. It's unlike Moses. Moses slowly faded and then quickly rose whenever he encountered God. His glory from his face was ultimately on a downward trajectory. But that is not the path of Christian transformation. The direction of the Christian life is that of sanctification, which intensifies. It's ongoing. We are growing. We are being transformed, as Paul will say in just a few phrases. It's present tense. It's continually happening. It's an ongoing process of being changed into the likeness of Christ. The Spirit is changing you. He's making you more like Jesus. You. You are certainly not who you were before you were saved. But also because a veil is not needed. Because because of the trajectory of the Christian life. As a Christian, you should not be who you were 10 years ago. You should not be who you were five. There's growth. Sanctification is on an upward trajectory. Moses' transformation, his shining, was on a downward trajectory. So we don't need a veil. We don't have... We don't have anything to hide because our transformation does not fade. It does not fade. It grows. We are called to be amazed, to be amazed at this fact. There's also a a point of evaluation here for every one of us. Is Is my love for the Savior growing or is it fading? We're being honest. There are certainly times in the Christian walk where where there are times of, of fading, but, but that doesn't last forever. It can't last forever. There may be difficult days. There may be seasons, but that's not the trajectory because the believer's transformation doesn't fade. Unlike Moses, we have nothing to cover up. His physical shining faded, but our transformation increases progressively over time. That brings us then to a third reason, a third reason to be amazed that God would transform you. Number three is because you can see Jesus. Number three is because you can see Jesus. This third reason to be amazed that God would transform you is shown in the next phrase. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God. Of the Lord. Remember in Exodus 33, when Moses asked to see God's glory, God did not actually grant him that request. He redirected it. He said, You can see, you can behold my goodness, but you cannot see my face. You cannot 
you cannot see my glory or you will die. But we read in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that we, watch this, watch the contrast, we are beholding the glory of the Lord. We all, with unveiled face, are doing what Moses could not do. We are beholding the glory of the Lord. How is it that we are beholding the glory of the Lord? The answer to how we behold God's glory is shown just a few verses later. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, it tells us where we behold the glory of the Lord. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We behold the glory of God in the face of Hebrews 1, verse 3, that Pastor Justin mentioned earlier. The sun is the radiance. He is the shining of God's glory. We see what Moses couldn't see. We see Jesus, and in him, we see the glory of the Lord. We see the glory of the Father. So the question that stands before us then is how exactly do we behold the glory of the Lord in the face of Christ. How do we see Jesus? And the answer to that question for every new covenant believer is that we see him in the word of God. We see him in our Bibles. The word behold in 2 Corinthians 3.18 is is a bit of a complicated word. Every time that it's used, it's actually used in the context of looking at something in a mirror. There, there's kind of a reflective emphasis in that word behold. That we, we see Jesus. Some of your translations may even say that we behold him as in a mirror. We behold him. But that word is, is as if we were looking in a mirror. And the question that, that we must ask in this verse is, in what, in what sense is Paul saying that we, we look at Jesus as if we were looking in a mirror? We see him, but it's, it's only partially him. right? We, we understand that when you, when you look in a mirror, you're seeing a reflection of yourself. And you could ask the question, when, when I look in a mirror, I see something, is that, is that me? Well, yes and no, right? There's certainly a sense where that's not me. It's my reflection. A blemish in the reflection may not be a blemish on me. So it's not, it's not necessarily me, but it is, it is my reflection. It's representative of me. In other words, if, if you and I were standing next to a mirror and you came up and you looked in the mirror and you saw my reflection, you were looking in the mirror and you see me and you say, wow. That is one hideous reflection. I would take offense, understandably. 
and you could not say, no, 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 no. I'm not talking about you. I'm just talking about your reflection. I'm not saying you're ugly. I'm just saying your reflection is ugly. It doesn't work that way because it's actually a reflection of me. What Paul is doing in this text is he is saying, we behold Jesus as if we are looking in a mirror. We understand that we behold Jesus as we look to the Word. Now, is, is, this, is this Jesus? No. But in this, we see Jesus. He is, he is reflected here. This, this shows us Christ. And the day is coming when we will see Him face to face. And, and we'll see Him person to person in a way that we, we never have before. And yet, for every new covenant believer, we get to see the glory of the Lord in the face of Christ as we read the Word. <laughs> Moses could not do what we have the absolute privilege of doing in seeing Christ and beholding Him and knowing Him more and growing in the knowledge of Christ and growing in a relationship with Christ as we see Him, as we fix our eyes upon Him. This is what the Christian does. We behold Christ. We look to Christ. We fix our eyes on Christ. And we do that through the word. We don't have a, we don't have a prayer in being transformed apart from the word of God in which we see Christ. If you want to be transformed into the likeness of Christ, we must behold Him. We must see Him. We must look to Him as He is revealed in the Word. God changes us. He transforms us as we fix our eyes on His Son. Hebrews 12 verse 3 gives us instruction on how this is done. It says, consider him. Consider him. Think upon him. 2 Timothy 2.8, remember him. Remember him. Hebrews 12, fix your eyes on him. Moses couldn't do that. So again, behold the privileged position that you are in. Moses asked to see God's glory and God didn't show it to him. You get to see the glory of God in the face of Christ with an unveiled face, with the whole body of Christ. Are you starting to see how incredible we have it? Paul's not done. There's a fourth reason, a fourth reason to be amazed, to be amazed that God would transform you. Number four, because your transformation is internal. Number four is because your transformation is internal. Now remember, this experience of the new covenant believer is being compared with Moses' experience on Mount Sinai. The transformation that Moses underwent on Mount Sinai was, was physical. It was external. As far as the emphasis of Exodus 33 and 34, that's all it was. He had a shining face. 
It's a physical, external sign. Your transformation, your transformation is internal. Paul says this, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. Transformed. That's the word of internal, foundational, fundamental change. This is not just a shining face. This is that you, you change. You are transformed internally. God is changing you from the inside out. It's not just a shining face. It's, it's a changed heart. It's not merely external. It's a fundamental and internal change. It's so important that we remember this. As we heard in the Christmas Eve service just a few days ago, Christianity is far more than adhering to rules and behavior modification. The believer is being changed at the most foundational level. Your desires are changing. Your affections are changing. Your heart is changing. Your thoughts, your mind, your will, it's all changing. The transformation of the believer is not just an external change. That would be akin to Moses' shining face. This is different, and it's better. It's internal. It's internal. I'll give you a, a, a simple, silly illustration. We all have various foods that, that we don't like. I don't enjoy tomatoes. There are certain scenarios where I will eat them, but I will not enjoy them. You cannot make me like tomatoes. However, if the situation is extreme enough, you can force an external change, and I can eat them, but I will not enjoy them. Sometimes we can see transformation that way, and it's very dangerous. I don't, I don't want to obey. I don't enjoy obeying. It's brutal. It's tough. But if we're transformed, we kind of do it anyways, even though we hate it, and we just swallow the pill and obey. The transformation that Paul is talking about is nothing like that. Transformation changes you internally. Your heart, your desires, your thoughts change. Your aspirations change. You change. The transformation process that Paul is talking about is like a, a guy like me, not just eating tomatoes, but loving tomatoes. And that's not going to happen. That's the point. This is so unnatural. This is not just an external change. You are transformed. You are transformed in a way that is starkly different from Moses as he was coming down the mountain. It's amazing. It's amazing. The gospel does not just produce people that obey because they have to. The gospel produces people that are changed, transformed. There's a fifth reason in this passage, a fifth reason to be amazed that God would transform you. Number five, because your transformation makes you more like Jesus. Because your transformation makes you more like Jesus. We talked earlier about the fact that your transformation doesn't fade like Moses did. Rather, yours actually grows. Well, in the next expression, Paul is explaining for us what that growth is actually into. Look at the next expression in our verse. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. 
The believer is being transformed, internally changed, yes. But what is it that he is being changed into? Paul clarifies that for us. We are being transformed into the same image. What is this same image? What's the image that he just referenced a phrase ago? The image that we see when we behold the glory of the Lord. We are being transformed into the same image. That same image is Jesus. We are being transformed to look like Christ. Let's be clear. You do not become Jesus. You do not become God in any way. What this means rather is that we are being changed to look like the image that we beheld. We look like Christ. When others see us, they see Christ. Does does that happen in your life? That is what transformation brings. Paul adds more clarity to this event. He says that we are being transformed to look like Christ from one degree of glory to another. Some translations say from one degree of glory to another. In other words, salvation. Salvation was glorious. There was glory in salvation. But we're being transformed in such a way that it doesn't stop at salvation. It's one degree of glory to another as we more reflect the glory of God in the face of Christ. It doesn't stop at salvation. We're being transformed into something even more glorious as we are changed to act and think and look more and more like Christ. He is the very glory of God. Think about that. Jesus is the manifestation of the glory of God. And we become like Him. Jesus is the glory of God and we become like Jesus. That, that, that is so counterintuitive. Even the notion of us becoming like the one who is the glory of God, Moses, Moses couldn't even look at the glory of God. And Paul says here, you're transformed to be like the glory of God in the face of Christ. It's amazing. It's, it's, it's shocking. And it's so easy to lose sight of how amazing that is. More glorious than Moses' experience on Mount Sinai. More glorious. I want us to note something very, very important. As noted earlier, you see, we see Jesus as we behold him in the word. In your Bibles. That's how God transforms us as we fix our eyes on His Son. What He transforms us into is to look like Christ. In other words, watch the connection here. We look to Jesus, we behold Him, and we become like Him. It is as we look to him that we look like him. It is as we behold him that we become like him. John Piper from this text coined a 
a fairly well-known line. I think it's helpful and appropriate. You become like what you behold. You become like what you behold. You become like what it is that you focus on. And what this verse is telling us is that as we behold Christ, we are transformed to look like Christ. But only as we behold Him through the Word. If we aren't beholding Him, then we won't become like Him. What is our chief focus? What is your chief focus? If your chief focus is your career or your appearance or your relationships, even if it's your spouse or or sports or fill in the blank, None of these, even the good things, will make us more like Christ. None of these will transform us into what it is that we are supposed to be. These are not to be our chief focus. We we behold Christ. We pursue Him. And all other things are avenues through which we bring Him glory. But He is the one we fix our eyes on. He is the one we behold. What you are focusing on is what you will become. If your focus is on anything other than Christ, it will fail you. It will fail you. But more importantly, you will become like the very thing that you are focusing on that has no eternal value. Our greatest need is to be like Christ. And that is what the transforming grace of God brings. A final reason, a sixth reason to be amazed that God would transform you. Number six, because you have the Holy Spirit. Because you have the Holy Spirit. Look at the final phrase in this verse. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Transformation is completely impossible unless the Holy Spirit is dwelling inside of you. God gives the Holy Spirit to everyone who is a child of God, who has repented of their sin and placed their faith in Christ. The Spirit is in you if you have done that. He indwells you. Moses did not have the Holy Spirit like you do. This whole chapter is showing why the ministry of the Spirit is better than the ministry of the law. Verse 17 tells us that that the Spirit brings freedom. Look at verse 17 of, of 2 Corinthians 3. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And, and, and that's not a freedom to just do whatever it is that we want to do. In, in the context here, he's saying there's, there's freedom in the Holy Spirit to be able to obey When you never could before, you were in bondage to sin, but in the Spirit there was freedom, and now you can obey. Under the law that brings condemnation, you were in bondage. But hallelujah, because of the Holy Spirit that is in you, you are set free from that bondage and are free to obey God. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. You have God dwelling inside of you. Again, it's meant to amaze us. It's meant to shock. 
As Paul is writing this, it's meant to be read people who would have respected Moses, a hero of the faith. And Paul is writing strongly, saying, what came with glory compared to what you have, it has no glory. It doesn't even compare. It doesn't compare. And so, be amazed. Be amazed. We are in a privileged position. The heroes of the faith would look to us and desire to be in our position. The emotions that we talked about several minutes ago, the emotions of inadequacy, of having nothing special in my Christian walk, of not having the motivation that I need to to remain, it's, it's just not true. It's not true. God has blessed us with that which we never deserved. You are being transformed from the inside out, in a way that doesn't fade, to look like Christ as you behold Christ in the Word, along with every other believer, with the Spirit of God indwelling within you. Remember that. Remember that. Be amazed. Jesus said in Matthew 13, verse 17, He said to His disciples, Truly I say to you, many prophets... Many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see. They desired to see it. They wanted to see it. But Jesus said they did not see it. Many prophets and righteous men desired to hear what you hear, and they did not hear it. Jesus said to his disciples what Paul is saying to us, that we are in a privileged position, that heroes of the faith longed to hear and to see and to experience what we have experienced in the transforming grace of God. So be amazed. Be amazed. That is... is, that is a fitting application as we, as we head into a new year. Head into a new year. Amazed. Shocked. Floored by the fact that God would place you in this privileged position of receiving His transforming grace. That we all with unveiled faces, would behold the glory of the Lord and be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Father, we are amazed. We are amazed at what you have done. We are undeserving. We are unworthy. Father, give us thoughts of amazement. Don't let these facts grow cold in our minds and in our spirits. Help us not to take the reality of your transforming grace for granted. Help us to be amazed at you and at your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.